mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to open our minds to understand it and to uh, prepare our hearts and wills uh, to believe it and to obey it. We give you thanks now uh, for your word in Christ's name. When you work through a psalm like this, especially Psalm 37, there is quite a bit of repetition. And uh, yet, when you, I mean, just, that's superficial, honestly. And uh, you meditate on it for just a couple minutes, and you begin to see there's a depth here that God wants you to see that's different than everything that you had before. And so, uh, what this does, these four verses, it contrasts righteous behavior, wicked behavior, and then God's response, God's behavior, if, if you will. And, uh, and as I was reflecting on a way to present this, I came up, and it's kind of funny because uh, Gary just prayed that we would not have in our minds comparisons. But I ask you to have in your mind comparisons because uh, this is all about contrast. So, for instance, I'm going to give you a word in most cases. Sometimes it's the whole thought. There's really no one, in, in each phrase, one word in each phrase that captures it. But there often is. So, for instance, the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom. This is a contrast to the mouth of the righteous speaks foolishness. And I want you to think about that. If you're God's, if you're his child, and if you are the righteous, then you should speak wisdom. And yet that's not always the case. In our own lives, in our own hearts and experience, we know We've not always offered people wisdom. And let me give you an illustration. It's not from me, although I probably have many of those I could share. But the one that always pops into my head when I think of this is the fellow who really led me to the Lord when I was in that barracks room long ago. And he was, his name was Tony. He was from inner city L.A. And unbeknownst to me at the time, he was married. And uh, after I got to know him a little better, I realized that he's married. His wife is still up in L.A. And after a few months, they got base housing, and she and her, their daughter came down, and they lived at base housing. Well, it wasn't more than a year later that they were getting divorced. And when he told me about it, he said that a deacon in his church basically said he could get divorced because he shared with the deacon the trouble that they were having in the marriage, and and this deacon told him, well, God wants you to be happy. So if you can only be happy by divorcing your wife, then I guess that's what God wants you to do. That's foolishness. That's not wisdom. And yet that was a man who claimed to know God, who was active in his church as a deacon, and yet gave him this awful advice. And he took it up. He divorced his wife. And later, I knew him a year later, he was actually living with a different girl. Now, the next phrase is, and his tongue talks of justice. Again, what would be the opposite of justice? And his tongue talks of lawlessness. What is the opposite of justice? Lawlessness. And yet, we live in a world that is filled with lawlessness. And the whole crux of our existence is oriented around lawlessness, rebellion. And yet too often, we Christians who should be, we should epitomize 
lawfulness, we don't. We more epitomize rebellion, and we are rebels in our hearts. And yet, we should be examples to every other citizen in our community of lawful obedience to lawful authorities. I know that we have issues with lawful authorities, and yet, to the degree that we should be obedient, we must be obedient. And to do otherwise is to be rebels, is to pattern ourselves after Satan as opposed to after Christ. Verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart. Now, the word I choose to contrast here is law. The law is in his heart. What would our culture think should be in his heart? The love of God is in his heart, right? It's all about love. God, after all, is love. And yet, is that what is to always be in our heart? No, it's always love tempered by our expectation of obedience to God, our lawful obedience to God. And so we can't allow just love to fill our hearts. If you allow just love to fill your hearts when you're interacting with your children, your children would be spoiled brats, wouldn't they? And so you must exercise law. You must exercise wisdom when it comes to raising your children. And God does the same with us. He expects the same of us. The next phrase, none of his steps shall slide. Now, this is where I didn't have a word. The whole thing speaks of safety. None of his steps shall slide. You are safe with God. And the contrast is jeopardy, right? You are not in jeopardy. Never on this earth. I don't care what you experience. You are never in jeopardy as God defines it. And so we need not live in fear. We need not live a fretful, worried existence. We need to base our, our passion for life, our passion for God in the fact that we are safe. It's as you often hear, you are immortal, right? This flesh may fail, but you will go on. And so you must rest in that, that comfort. Now, beginning at verse 32, we switch to the wicked behavior. We have two thoughts here, but they're rather uh, involved. The wicked watches the righteous. And the contrast here I want to make is the wicked does not ignore the righteous. We may sometimes think that, but it's not true. The wicked watches the righteous very carefully, very carefully. It's like they're spying on us. Why is that? Why, when I became a believer, did my dad know exactly what was going on in my life? I thought he was oblivious. But a friend came over when I came home and everybody had heard that I'd become, you know, a Christian. And a man offered me a beer. Oh, and then he started to back off. My dad says, oh, no, no, he drinks beer. It's like my dad is very attentive to what I no longer did or didn't do. Very interesting. They watch us. My dad was fallen. He remained fallen to his death. And yet he knew what I did and didn't do. He was very careful to watch me. Now, the scary thing is this. Jesus said, why is this? Why is it that they oppose us with a passion? And he said, I testify of the world that its works are evil. And so we, to the degree that we testify that the works of the, the world are evil, they will hate us. They will watch us and wait to see us fall. Now, the next sentence says, and seeks to slay him. So again, the contrast is here. The wicked do not want to save you. 
you might think that they be, are befriending you, that they're your good buddies. And yet, if you are more comfortable in this life with the wicked than with the righteous, with the wicked than with the church attenders, then there's probably something going on in your heart that you should inspect. Now, granted, we all have likes and dislikes. We all like certain people. We dislike other people. This is part of being human. You just, you just click with certain people, and you don't click with other people. That's fine. You still should love them. You still should be able to get along with them, communicate with them. And yet, if you find that you are averse to the church, be careful. Because that's Jesus' bride that you're talking about. If you don't like the church, then you're basically disrespecting his wife. And I don't think he's going to like that. Now, this seeking to slay him, your unbelieving friends plot your ruin. If you're a believer and you have unbelieving friends, you must recognize that your unbelieving friends plot your ruin. They might not do it consciously, but I can guarantee you they are doing it unconsciously. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy. This is, a, this is a verse that's always influenced me ever since I was a young believer. 2 Timothy 2.24 and on. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Unbelievers are captives of Satan, and they do his will. Now, you might find that hard to believe, because the wicked aren't nearly as wicked as they could be, right? But see, that's one of the devious aspects of Satan. He knows that if the wicked always behaved entirely wickedly, that would be fretful of them, would be fearful of them. We would know their plans. And so what they want to do is insinuate the wicked into your trusted sphere. He wants to get inside the firewall of your life and then sow seeds of destruction. Then that wicked person can influence you and draw you away from God. The wicked plot your ruin all the time. They don't even know it. They don't even know that's what they want. They're lost. But you, as a child of God, must always remember that. You must always treat the wicked, treat the rebellious against the Lord with caution. Now, the next two say, speak of God's behavior. And so this is in Psalm 37 again, and we're speaking at verse now 33. The Lord will not leave him in his hand. Will not leave him in his hand. I'm going to catch this fly. So now what does this mean if the fact that God will not leave you in the hand of the wicked? What did he let happen? He let you get into his hand, didn't he? So he isn't saying that he won't let you get into his hand, but he will not leave you there. He will rescue you from that fate. So see, that's where we must always have faith that God wants what is good for us, but he is going to bring us through difficulties. We will fall into these difficulties often through our own neglect of our spiritual walk, and yet he will always rescue you. You just need to turn to him, call to him. And the last verse, nor condemn him when he is judged, nor condemn him. So that obviously contrasts with justify. 
If God is not condemning you, what is he doing? He's justifying you. And so see, if you fall into the hand of the wicked, oftentimes you're there because of your own sin, your own neglect of your soul. And yet he will not abandon you to that, and he will not condemn you for that. He rescues you from it. You are justified by the blood of Christ. And so you are resting in the hand of God, even though your outward conduct might not always be in conformity with what Christ would want, with whom we are to model ourselves after. The wicked refuse forgiveness. They are too proud to accept it. We, the believer, has accepted forgiveness. They've been washed of their sin. But too often, we then begin to associate our conduct with our right standing before God. And then we become self-righteous as opposed to Christ-righteous. But the wicked see this. The wicked see, probably more clearly than we do, where we view the source of our righteousness. And yet again, God will not condemn you for that, but he will draw you close to yourself. There was a bumper sticker I saw down in Lincoln this weekend, and uh, bumper stickers are such illumination of the soul of the people that slapped them on their car. This one said this, faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. So who is this person? that stuck this bumper sticker on their car. What are they speaking of? When they say faith is a journey, not a guilt trip, who are they, who are they, who are they attacking? Most likely, us. Because we're trying to say yes, no. Do, don't do. And they don't like it. Faith is a journey. It's my journey. Get out of my path. You're not on my journey. You're not on my journey unless I want you on my journey. And even if you're on my journey, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. And see, that's what I see a bumper stick like that. That's what I see. Now, though, their experience could have been based on some Christian's self-righteous judgment of them. And this is then a, a stench in the nostrils of God. Their perception of Christ and of Christianity has been soiled by a Christian who doesn't really reflect very well. Because as Christians, we must acknowledge our sins. We must confess our sins. We must admit them, and yet admit that God has absolved us of this. We don't stand righteous before God because of what we've done, because of what Christ has done. So any opportunity we have to confess our sins to our unbelieving friends, we should do so. We should be the first to do so, because we are living out what Christ wants us to do, how he wants us to live. And yet, I think that's rare. If not rare, at least it's, it's not normal. We want to hide our sins from everybody, especially our unsaved friends and family, the ones who could probably most benefit by having it pointed out to them that we stand justified before the Lord, not because of what we do, and, and in spite, at times, of what we do, but only through the forgiveness of Christ. So see, this text, it, has, it is so deep, it is so meaningful, and if you just really examine it for a few seconds, you begin to get into that. So see, we Christians have accepted Christ's forgiveness, but we too often forget our constant need of it. So we deceive ourselves thinking that we're worthy of God just because of who we are, just because of the fact that we come here, just because we tithe, just because we read the Bible and pray. None of that 
makes you acceptable before God. It is Christ that makes you acceptable before God. And all that you do from the moment you're saved until your death is give up lame sacrifices to the Lord. It isn't that he doesn't want you to do that. He does want you to do that as best you can. But he never wants you to associate that with your standing with him. You stand with him through his grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your uh, forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for the fact that Christ leads us. He leads us into proper conduct. And yet, Lord, to the degree that we do exhibit proper conduct, we pray that we would be humble, that we would recognize that it is the grace of the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ, and that it is this within us that pours out. It is the gift that you have given that keeps on giving through us being able to uh, subject our sins to the cross. And so, Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you for your presence in the elements here. We thank you for the grace that this extends to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us how to extend that grace to others. We ask your leading in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.